What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Welcome to episode 529 with my guest Julie Kay. I'm Paul Gilmartin. Who are you? I've never asked you to introduce yourself. I can't believe that. I've been doing this podcast for 10 years. I'm so selfish. Anyway, we'll get to know each other. <laughs> I don't know what this creepiness is I'm kicking the podcast off with, but I kind of like it and I kind of hate it. Uh, as I said, my name is Paul Gilmartin, in case you've forgotten. And this podcast, in case you've reached it by accident, is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. I am not a therapist. You've been forewarned, but I feel like I do have some some input that's valid. I've been in support groups for 17, 18 years and been in therapy for on and off for 30. <laughs> You're probably saying, well, you haven't gotten any better. Why should I continue listening? I have gotten better. How dare you? How fucking dare you come at me in the first five minutes of my podcast? All right, let's jump into some surveys. Oh, I should mention, too, that the uh, this episode with Julie Kay was recorded a pretty long ago, a couple of years ago, and um, the reason I held on to it for so long was she had a really bad cold when we were recording this, and I just kind of dreaded sitting down and having to edit out all the all the sounds of somebody hacking with the with the cold. But I'm glad I I finally did because uh, I think it's a great conversation, and she's she's just a really cool person. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by Jennifer C. Oh, this one is so good. About her depression, she writes, Depression is anger without the enthusiasm. <laughs> oh my God. That is so fantastic. That is so fantastic and so dead on. And I am absolutely stealing that. You will get no credit. None. 
In fact, when I say that on a talk show or any place public, I will say that is my thought, and that is not from a listener. <laughs> is your name Jennifer C? Which might sound a little suspicious. And say, I think he's compensating. I think that might have been from Jennifer C. This is from the Struggle in a Sentence survey filled out by uh, a teenage guy who calls himself Permanent Do Not Disturb. And about his ADD, he writes, That's a cool computer. I wonder what computers are made of. What's the element Tony Stark made in Iron Man? I got to Google it right now. About his love addiction. We've been together for two seconds. Maine would be a perfect spot for our wedding. Those are great. Thank you for that. JJ fills out the survey and writes about his depression. It's a hollow, empty, sad chest. And about his codependency. If you can't make me forget how sad I am, I'm not interested. Oh, that is fantastic. One of our sponsors for today, as always, is BetterHelp. Dot com online therapy. If you have never tried online therapy, I'm a huge fan. I have a great relationship with my therapist, Donna. I've been talking to her for, God, probably three years now, and she helps me through so many, so many areas in my life. I love not having to leave my house. And uh, yeah, if you're interested in checking it out, go to betterhelp.com dot com slash mentor mental and that's better h e l p dot com uh and include the slash metal part so they know you came from this podcast and uh check it out if they have a counselor they feel is a good fit for you they'll pair you up with one and you can experience a free counseling a uh, week of free counseling to see if that's your thing and they are licensed in all 50 states and then finally, these are some uh, happy moments filled out by a guy who calls himself uh, Nothing Bagel. Uh, actually, no, no, this is a, a woman who calls herself Nothing Bagel. And uh, she writes, Super Bowl Sunday 2021. I do not know who is playing, and that's okay. I only felt the familiar flood of I should thoughts for a moment this year. I should know who is playing. I should be more into this. I should at least watch the halftime show. I should make some festive snacks. And then I just let it all go. I do not like football, and that does not mean that anything is wrong with me. It does not mean that I am not a good American, whatever that is. Maybe it's COVID, but it just feels like a little bit of the pressure of these things has lifted. I hate to say that this pandemic has been peaceful for me when it's brought so much pain to so many, but I do feel like the anxiety and disappointment that lives deep within me has been dispersed among the population, and I can breathe a little easier. I do not have to carry it alone or feel left out. The pandemic has showed us all how fragile life is, that everything about how you live your life can change in an instant, that we really don't have any control over the future. So today I went for a walk. I love peering into open windows and hearing sounds of human connection drift out of cracked patio doors and garages. When you say peering into windows, I hope that you mean that as you pass by the house, you're, you're looking at an open window because... <laughs> It's completely different if you're like, I love pressing my nose against the glass when it's dark out and I know they can't see me. Uh, I used to do it uh, to feel sad. 
I think I used to do it to feel sad, to remind myself that those sounds of normal life do not belong to me. But today, I felt connected and happy, not lonely. All of the, quote, want that I used to feel never surfaced. The want of more friends, the want of a happy family, the want of being able to mindlessly chatter over spinach artichoke dip and beer. I'm learning about the deeper wants of my soul. I'm learning that jealousy has no place when you realize that we are all in this together. So I just basked in the happiness of watching a child ride her bike. I smiled at the couple chatting on their patio, watering their plants. I giggled at the group of guys clapping and hollering while watching the game on a beat-up couch in their garage. A beautiful hummingbird zipped past my face and then onto a red feeder nearby. I looked up at the wispy clouds floating in the blue sky. And in that moment, I felt so at home inside of myself. Just a small human being walking on this unpredictable, undeniably connected planet. I just wanted to get the fuck away from my life. You know, I couldn't have felt any lower. Grief, guilt, shame. Why wasn't I born a girl? There's a switch that gets flipped in my head. I'm supposed to be a girl. I experience being treated like an animal. How can a just God... I have a vomit fetish. Let humans do this to each other. Help! I fucking flew over the cuckoo's nest. My wife's losing it. I thought it was all about me. I don't know what to do. I would have committed suicide if I could have watched my funeral. A Polaroid I found of my mother um, naked in a dentist chair. And my body doesn't quite... I think I did eight days in L.A. County Jail. ...fit how I see myself. What was it all for? Why are my friends dead? Everything that I did, there's a comfort in the scars for me, was in service of OCD. You've already had all the paper cuts. Step away from the paper. It's really hard to see the picture when you're inside the frame. You know, it takes a larger view to see your life. Just actually have somebody listen to you. Yeah. And I got up and got my tooth and left. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Julie Kay. We've uh, corresponded a little bit. We we got a bite to eat, learned a little bit uh, more about each other. You turned me on to some of the best curry I've ever I've of ever course. had here. V- v- Vera Swami. Vera Swami. Mm, London's oldest curry establishment. 1926. Mm. It was good. I, so I, good. I love having like authentic English experiences. Yeah. Right? Well, I love how an authentic yeah. English experience just, is, is Indian food. It's turned food. into Indian, of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I just love eating the, the food of places that they overtook. Mm. There's just yeah. something so nice about just a, a plate full of imperial power. There is. Yes. I love imperial yeah. power. It's my favorite. Um, that's my favorite Indian appetizer. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> uh, the issues that we're going to talk about uh, today, among other things, um, is the struggles you've had in the past with uh, shopping mm-hmm. and gambling mm-hmm. and coming from a... A wealthy British background. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think a lot of Americans know how classist mm-hmm. the UK can be, or particularly yeah. England, mm-hmm. how class conscious mm-hmm. they can be. Because uh, for for all of its faults, for for some reason, America seems mm-hmm. to be a place that it's really more about. They don't care so much about where you come from as sure. much as how much you can yeah, buy, mm-hmm, buy today mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, <laughs> or yeah. how famous you are. Uh, so talk, if you would, about what your upbringing was like, 
just it, give a sense of the kind of emotional context of what it was like not only in your house mm -hmm. but in your area okay so um i grew up in the suburbs of london uh three bedroom semi-detached house uh, my dad worked my mum did part-time jobs and probably middle class mm -hmm. so um there's that kind of being middle class that's that's kind of slight reservation and also the okay so not upper class middle class i don't know why i thought it was up, upper no, class. no not, not upper class i guess because your know. pinky is always extended it is always. Which, yeah <laughs> it is that's true yes. and the yeah. butler that i take around with me all the time yeah and, and always looking through your opera glasses <laughs> that's which true i found unnecessary <laughs> did you to p push the did elevator you? button did you need to look <laughs> oh, through opera glasses well, i suppose i didn't you have yeah. got a point there paul okay. um so that middle classing but there's always um but certainly not working class or, or lower class and that's the distinction is that i think that middle class you've got you're not born into money but you have the you, you want to do the best so there's very much the hence the expression of you know keeping up with the joneses it will be life's normal uh walk of life but you're trying to better yourself so anything that you do you're trying to kind of impress the neighbors with or guess where we've been we've been to spain this week oh have you well we're going to portugal next week and you're just trying to you know outdo people certainly that's how it was for me uh in the 70s growing up or seeing my parents and neighbors try and outdo each other with the latest lawnmower or whatever it happened to be <laughs> what what was the kind of the emotional temperature in your house growing up siblings relationship between your parents uh... um so i'm an only child and so I've got no frame of reference for what it should have been like because obviously not having had siblings, That's it right. was... we, we talked about you being an only mm. child and me yeah. having the terrible mm. memory. Um, scooting my chair around. That is not me farting. I'm actually it farting. Is. I'm farting as I scoot the chair around. It's a really great way to, to, to mm. cover it up. Um, but yeah, talk, talk about the being the, the only so child. Being an only child, um, I lived in a, a, do you call them a close, a cul-de-sac? Yeah, like, I, I grew a, up on a cul-de-sac. A cul-de-sac. Yeah. So being there, there were other children that I could play with. But um, as an only child, my mum was always very protective of me. So whereas the others in the close would be allowed to walk to the end of the close or walk up to the local shops together, I was never allowed to. I always kind of felt that I'd missed out a bit. But then, Which is unusual in the 70s. Mm, yeah. Really unusual in the yeah, 70s. Yeah, so I wasn't allowed to go out of the, the circle of the close. Wow. It, it, with the closest the the, cul the cul-de-sac yeah oh, sorry okay so the, the cul-de-sac i would only be allowed to be uh, allowed to go halfway down down the cul-de-sac until what age i don't know until I, I didn't really i suppose maybe 13 wow something like that and then, then i would be able to walk somewhere as long as i was with someone else because i i know it's probably different f for for girls and boys in our society mm -hmm. which i don't necessarily think it should be mm -hmm. But I remember being like eight years old and we would just say, I'm, I'm going out to play. Yeah. I'll be back at dinner time. And you know what? That was that was pretty much how it was for my husband who grew up as one of three boys. Yeah. That's what they would they would say. Right. Yeah, we're going out and we'll see you later. And they'd be off all day. Yeah. But whether it was just because I was an only child or whether it's because of my parents, I, I don't know. Who did you feel like that directive was coming from? Oh, definitely from my mum. Okay. Had something traumatic happened to her as a child? No, but she was an only child, and I, I'm. I just. I guess that that maybe she would have been protected like that by her parents. I, I guess. So uh, you know, as a an only child 
of an only child, you can imagine how <laughs> how overprotected you know I, I was. So, um, but growing up um, in the seventies, didn't want for anything. Um, did as I was told. Uh, I had a very happy home life. My dad's um, who I idolise and adore worked for an insurance company, so he worked and would kind of alternate two weeks working daytime and then two weeks working in the evenings collecting um you know payments from from people uh so that he could be around to help me with schoolwork well you know as we were talking uh, while we, while we were eating mm. the it's interesting that you said that you know I came from this uh happy home mm. yet you were sharing these things about your mom mm -hmm. um when you would when you would achieve something share with me yeah. what, what she would do yeah so it would be um, I was a clever girl at school and you were top of your class. Top of, yeah, top of my class at junior school. Um, did great, uh, did dancing, would win things all, all the time, competitions that uh, are dancing. I got into a, the secondary school, um, that I got into, you had to be like the top 2% in, in the local area to get into there. Um, just everything would be perfect, but it would, a lot of it would be, I know she would be proud of me, but the reason I would know that would be because I would hear her saying, oh, of course, my Julie, she's just got into such and such school. Or, of course, she just won the such and such. But it was never, I never felt that it was directed at me. And I've only, it's only just kind of now in my life that I've almost realised thinking, actually, I, I know she was proud, but she was proud of my achievements rather than me. I, I, there was a bit of confusion around that. Um, and even... And I know that as an only child, I definitely try to try to please her all the time. And it's only through listening to some of your podcasts um, about emotional availability that, I, that I've come to realise the the difference in the relationship. So even now, I'll be um, and I met my husband when we were teenagers. Uh, first ones to get um, engaged, to get a house to have children, I have two children, one boy, one girl, pretty much everything as would be, you know, perfect in inverted commas or, or on paper. And, uh, you know, I hear my mum's, you know, say to people, of course, you know, my Julie, oh, yes, she met him at school. He went to the boys' school, very clever boy, and blah, blah, blah. He earns very good money or he works very high up. There's a lot of pride in what I've achieved. But I can even say, well, guess what, mum? Usually it's just silly things like I found a paint colour, I want to paint this, and there's always a, a caveat to it. It'll be, okay, great. Did you sort out the lights in the bathroom yet? There's always something which brings it down, or I might say, guess what? I found, I look, I've tried this dress on to go to this um, party, and it looks absolutely amazing. Oh, fantastic. Do you think you'll be okay if you don't wear high heels? Or, uh, you know, are you sure that that's a good colour to wear? There'll be something that's kind of detracts from it slightly that is a caveat to the well done that's brilliant there's never that there's always a where do you think it'll be next do you think you'll also wear that to such and such it's never kind of a, a complete appreciation i suppose yeah it, it, it sounds like there was like she could never be still enough to have you be seen as mm -hmm. you are yeah and i wonder if there, there has to be a word other than pride for, for what she felt. Because to me, it feels like if you're not sharing your joy with 
your family member mm-hmm. who has done something, but you're only using it to try to impress other people. Mm-hmm. That that can't be pride. I mean, maybe that is the right word, but they're... I don't know. Schaden, I, I don't, Schadenpreide. Schaden, it is Schadenpreide. That's right. It's the, yeah, the, the, the pride in the well-doing of somebody else. And the thing is, like, I don't even think that she realizes that she is doing it. And I don't think it's, I don't think she would understand if she hears this podcast. She she won't understand at all because it's the same with anything. Her justification for things is because it comes from a place of love. Um, but just because something comes from a place of love doesn't mean to say... It, it, it feels it, like love to the other person. Correct. That's right. Because the most important thing, I think, yeah. is for it to feel like love. Yeah, absolutely. For the other person. Yeah. So so at home, it was quite... Um, my parents, who are still married so after 40 years, 50 years, God, long time. So they're, they're still together. Um, but it used to be volatile at home. Um, my mum would fly off the handle, have rows. My dad would not know what to do. And I would find that quite early on, in my life, maybe from the age of, probably about the age of 12, when I started going to grown-up school, I would be the person who was trying to mediate between the two of them, um, which I think is why I still kind of enjoy mediating and getting involved in other people's business, being a nosy parker um, and saying to, you know, trying to say to my dad, look, dad, I think that my mum's point was that she was angry that such and such and mum you shouldn't have thrown the knife across the room but mm-hmm. you know it was probably because you were feeling that dad wasn't giving you enough thing am i right and so even from like a really young age that's kind of counseling 101 there right. um you know to try and get them to see sense up but you know my mum would storm out of the room um storm out and say slam the front door and say she was going and then she'd be back and um but I, I, i'm not having a, any frame of reference or people talking about things at home. Uh, before we go any further, mm. uh, let's give a shout out to your friend Claire, yes. who's a listener and it turned you on to the she to did. this podcast. She did, and I think, like I said to you, I feel like you know when you have somebody, a friend, who introduces you to their friends, <laughs> and then you end up being better friends <laughs> than you were with the original one. So yeah. I think Claire was slightly <laughs> miffed that um, I was going to meet you today. She should have come too. Uh, yeah, I wish she lived here because I, I, I would like to have said uh, yeah. said hi. Um, let's remember our thought that we were going to come back to because mm. uh, there's one more thing I, I, I wanted you to share because I think it's a great peek into yes. uh, not only your soul but Claire's mm-hmm. soul as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I assume she's okay with you you sharing. She's fine. Epsilon nine. Epsilon nine. She'd be fine with this, and she'll be as she says. She'll be absolutely laughing her head off because it's something that quite often we've each let slip with and we've mentioned what epsilon nine is to people and some people just don't don't get it oh i Um, so get it i so get um but yeah she's she's one of my um oldest friends um that i've known since uh, secondary school and somebody who i can honestly say she feels fulfills the role of my intellectual husband in that if I want to speak to somebody about, I talk about politics or subjects that my husband, when he comes in from a hard day of work and being talked at and talked to, he just wants to chill out. But because I do nothing all day because I'm a stay-at-home mum, all I want to do 
is talk to people about things. Mm-hmm. So Claire fulfills that side of my relationship. So mm-hmm. she's my, yeah, husband that I speak to um, about, about all sorts of stuff. So I can speak to her about anything. And we have in common uh, some mother issues. Um, and when each of our mums does something particularly frustrating or particularly typical, um, we used to say, oh, I've got a brilliant nuggets of mumness. And so we just shorten those down now to mum nugs. So, you know, the mum nugs are, are, are those um, snippets where you have mm-hmm. classic uh, thing. So, I mean... And we were, we were talking mm-hmm. about what a, what a great thing that is to have with somebody mm-hmm. because it, it, when you experience one, it lessens the pain of it because you've got a great story to Absolutely. share with somebody. It's exactly like you coining the awfulsome yeah. things. Anybody who listens to, to this podcast will, when you hear the awfulsome thing, you're like, yeah, I totally get it because you get mm-hmm. it. So it doesn't become awful. It does become awfulsome because it is half awesome in its awfulness. Yeah. Um, there was uh, a comedian. I don't know if she if she wants this shared, so I won't say her name. But she and her friend did a show where it would just be them going back and forth, saying things that each of their moms said. Yeah. And one of the ones that one of the moms said, um, "Is he a Muslim Muslim or a Muslim in jail Muslim?" <laughs> That's precious. Uh, so, how did uh, Epsilon 9 So, Epsilon come? 9 is, a, let's call it a coping mechanism, shall we? Um, so, as well as the kind of nuggets of mum, the mum nugs, we decided that, as you do when you're chatting one day to a friend and you just say, do you know what? I just like, let's just get out of here. Let's just, let's build a rocket. Let's find our own planet. For just you and me, this is how this is how it went. Let's find our own planet. What we're going to call it? Let's call it. Oh, I don't know. We'll call it Epsilon Nine, and we'll just go on on this planet. Just you and me. We'll just have the people that we want there. So and it started off a bit like the ideal dinner party of who are you going to have on the rocket? You know, blah blah blah. Of course, Patrick Stewart. He's going to be the captain. He's got you know, um, he he can be very amusing, and of course, he's got the Star Trek experience. Make it so. And when we get to the planet, right, what do we Well, I tell you what I want. Um, and the first thing we said was, let's have like just a, a place where we've got mountains of gifts, like all those presents that you buy for people that really you'd like. Let's have mountains, mountainous mountains. And we'll have our own like little postman dwarves who go off on little tiny Shetland ponies. And they're the ones they have to climb up present mountain. The higher you climb, the higher the value of gift. So it's going to take longer to get the high value ones which are further up and then they can deliver it to us and we started kind of going into this adventure fantasy land where each place or area was like a coping mechanism so we have um i invented something called the rant room and this is a room where when you've had a conversation with your mum that's made you want to scream it's soundproof you can just go in there and you can scream as much as you like. No one's going to hear it, and you just get it all out, out of your system. And then on the walk out, you walk down a corridor. Lined in the corridor is all the the figurines and all the shit that your 
mum tries to pass on to you either through inheritance or because it's hers. I mean, it doesn't have to be China. It, it, it could d- be despite you code. saying, I yeah, don't want I, I this. Don't, I don't want this. Well, you should have it. Why don't you? So in the UK, we have a, a China make that's called, called Ladro. It's a Spanish make. Mm-hmm. Ladro, and it's uh, blue, and it's always beautiful, like a, a ballerina. It's either a ballerina or it's a Victorian boy with a cap. Sad little Victorian <laughs> child with a cap. And no, I'm fine. Was there a happy Victorian never, child? Never, never. Always Victorian boy with a with a or a sad clown. Always some kind of. Could I have more, sir? <laughs> exactly. Just a bit. <laughs> yeah, I'm, any... a, I'm a wee bit hungry. <laughs> That's any excuse for yeah. you to get in your little English Victorian yeah. waif. <laughs> um, and so you have a rant room, and then all this stuff that your mum tries to kind of foist on you. Uh, you know, lining the corridor. Anything is lining the corridor, and you can pick up bits and you can smash the shit out of it. Just throw it against a fucking wall, smash, smash. So it gets um, yeah. And so Claire and I would have this conversation, and as we're describing what we want and adding different pieces to it, of course we're both laughing our heads off. But it's also very therapeutic and kind of saying, yeah, actually, what 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 would I want in an ideal world? And the world is mine. What would I want? Mm-hmm. Like I was saying to you earlier, when we were in Viraswama having our curry, I've in Epsilon 9, there is, I'm calling it the popper dome. So it's round like a popper dome, but it's got a big glass dome on the top. So you can see everything out, beautiful. And it just serves curry. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, <laughs> 24 hours, just curry all the time. Red curry? Yeah, every, everything. Every curry. Every curry you can think of. And then after you've eaten... Instead of it being a floor, it's just like a mattress to your left and right, and you just flop out of your flop out of your chair, have a nap. And I've always thought that a restaurant with beds next to it is like missing out. You know, they're missing out on something there. Ah, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, one of the dreams that I used to have when I was a teenager was a bubble mm. that you could get into that would have pillows like uh, the I Dream of Genie bottle. Yeah. Uh, And you would get into this bubble and it would be in the Atlantic Ocean in the middle of a gigantic storm. You would be safe from the waves. And you could just sit in there on the pillows and get high and watch the chaos around (laughs) you that couldn't touch you. Yeah, I wonder why. I wonder that that was a a a metaphor metaphor for something. something. (laughs) Um, What were were some of the other things on uh, Epsilon? So some of the other things on Epsilon 9, my favorites would be, uh, I think this comes from being a parent and constantly warning children of not getting messy or being warned not to get messy or dirty. And that is, uh, it's it's like a ride. You have to wear white. You have to wear white. And you know how sometimes at public swimming baths, you have that little foot, that awful cold right. foot thing that you to have clean to, your feet to clean off your feet off. Yeah. Well, that's like chocolate sauce. That's made of chocolate sauce. And then like a, like a, 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 a aqua zoom. What do you call them? A water slide. Water slides. Water slides. But the, instead of water, it's like cherry juice. So everything... Uh, and when you come out at the end, it's onto grass and mud. So basically, anything to get you get your white stuff stained and as filthy as possible. Because <laughs> there's nothing quite like owning the fact that, do you know what? Get it dirty. Get it dirty. Wear the clothes. Throw them away. Start again. And I think that if I'd had that kind of that attitude towards stuff and not worrying about things so much, 
you know, that would have been helpful. What about an alarm clock that wakes you up by slowly pouring hot fudge into your mouth? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And maybe the alarm clock itself has kind of got like almost like an extended, like a little hand or maybe a feather, something that just kind of touches your forehead as as it just soothes you awake rather than that kind of awful, that noise where you hear an alarm clock in it. And and maybe it even says, we don't have to face the world. Yeah. It's your choice. And did I tell you? You look so beautiful in that. You look beautiful as you are. That pillow looks good That's on so you. Good, that pillow looks or actually, good. it would be you look good on the pillow. <laughs> you look so good on that pillow. That's right. Yeah. Uh, oh, the other one that, that that we were, of course, when Julie told me this, uh, I was came up with five of my own. <laughs> yeah, absolutely sold straight away. And it would be uh, like one of those rifles at the carnival that you use to, you know, <laughs> you know like pop the balloons, but it shoots corks. And you have to try to shoot the cork into the mouths of uh, people uh, judging you using the Bible. Mm-hmm. Perfect. That is, I mean, that's great. That's a fantastic one. Um, I know that as well. We've got, we've got one where um, it's like a lodge, like a wooden lodge, except it's not made of wood. It's made of bacon. So <laughs> there's loads of different rashes of bacon. It's a, you know, it's a savory lodge. And you can go there and sit down and just, you know, chew the shit and, Bite off a little bit of um, the banister, bacon banisters. And I started to even draw some of these um, and, you know, do illustrations for them, write down things, new languages, new words that we came up with. I mean, it's kind of a fully formed idea. Uh, I think, yeah, we were we were talking about Julie turning it into, Julie and Claire turning it into uh, an adult coloring book. I was like, we will totally sell that <laughs> on our, on our yeah. website. Um, so getting back to, you know, it, it, it occurred to me as you were sharing about how you and Claire will laugh as you come up with mom nugs or <laughs> ideas for Epsilon 9, that in essence, that is really what a good support group meeting feels Definitely. like, yeah. at least to me. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, and I think that I might have touched on this in in an email to you, actually, when we were talking about, uh, I think you'd asked if I was in any support groups. And I said that I actually had attended a support group but that I didn't get on with it. And I have to say that anybody who says that they don't get on with a support group or counselling, I always tend to judge very harshly and think, find another support group or find another counsellor. But for me, the support group that I went to, um, I found that, and I don't know whether it's a, an English thing or not, um, but I found that it was, instead of being su- supportive, just I did feel like I belonged there, mm-hmm. but I felt it was kind of, glamorizing things rather than talking through things i felt that and it's like although we laugh at shared experiences Mm -hmm. uh, which is that i felt it wasn't so much a getting other people's shared experiences it was almost like a platform for people to glorify to glorify and outdo each other yeah and i i I didn't i didn't enjoy it at all i found it really counterproductive because it was kind of like saying it's like going to you know support group for for drugs and then going, but do you remember how brilliant it was when we used to do drugs? And it's like, I don't want to, I don't want to feel like that. that you know, that, that does happen at sometimes even at the best meetings, but the, mm-hmm. the, the consistently good ones, in my experience, always come back to mm-hmm. the solution. Sure. Or people asking for mm-hmm. help and bringing it back to the issue, the why you're there. But mm-hmm. um, that, 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 
that is annoying when it gets away from the solution yeah. and, and it becomes and a one, one upmanship. Sure, and that's just ha- that's how I, I that's how I felt was I kind of thought I don't I don't I'm not enjoying this um, because although of course I like a good story, but at the time it was like this is like joking about something which I don't feel is particularly funny. Yeah, especially when you first roll in. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So yeah. I was in that support group for about four months, but um, there's, you know, so I live in the southeast London suburbs. There's not an awful lot of choice. There are support groups for everything, but there's not a huge variety. So so for me, it's the same. It's always going to be the same people at the same meetings. So I kind of gave up, gave up on that. But I found that certainly the support of, my friend Claire, you know, another maybe one or two individuals, and also my counsellor. I kind of get what I need from a support group from from them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about the spending addiction mm-hmm. and the gambling sprees. This is quite recent for me, so it's still quite painful to talk about, but that's fine. Everything is. Um, I found that. You know, and in the past, so I made reference to support groups. Um, I found that I was drinking in a very destructive way when my mum got ill and that I didn't like the person it was turning me into. I started using drugs. My mum found a small amount of cocaine in my house, which, ironically, it was in my house and she'd been rifling through my stuff. (laughs) Hence why she found it. Um, and it, especially in, I'm going slightly off tangent, but you'll understand why. In for somebody who uh, she'd been so proud of, to find out that I was using drugs uh, uh, pure, purely recreationally, um, and it was then oh she's like Amy Winehouse. It, even that was kind of made into a again the pride and shooter. It was an, mm-hmm. almost like an proud anti proud but still proud that, that there was a you know some tragedy you know there was that element of well, certainly that's how I felt that even though it's something plus negative it was still something to be touted as I don't know not gossip but I don't know it's difficult to explain but um I found it very difficult saying to my mum and dad look you know there's no problem I haven't got a problem you know you can walk into any any pub in the southeast London and, and score drugs anytime. Um, but they didn't get it because they're from a different generation. Mm. So I was made to feel very much like, you know, I was Amy Winehouse and this is a... And, and to be fair, I think any parent would be alarmed finding mm-hmm. cocaine on their kid because they they don't... You know, let's put the issue aside that she was rifling through your shit and you were an <laughs> yeah. adult. Let's yeah, put yeah, that yeah. aside. Mm-hmm. I think any parent... Uh, is understandably concerned finding mm-hmm. finding cocaine. Um, but it sounds like instead of talking to you about it, she just kind of yeah, made her it. mind up about yeah, I was, and what I was, it was. Yeah, and I was ashamed very much. So it was already, I, I felt that I couldn't kind of say, look, but you don't understand. It's it's prolific. It's no, it's no biggie or it's acceptable. I understand that you're concerned, but it was very much, I was very much shamed mm-hmm. into what a waste what have you let yourself, you know, become? Instead it, of what's going on yeah, with instead you, of what, yeah, talk instead of to what's me. going on, yeah, that's right. Are you hurting? 
Mm-hmm. Is is yeah. is there something you're having so, trouble? So kind of being shamed in that way and also um you know, my mum telling my husband and then my in laws, I'm feeling kind of being made to feel very small where you know, there were other people that I knew that they knew that were also doing it and I kind of felt like, you know, why am I the one being vilified here? And how old were you? Oh, this was like um Monday? Yeah. <laughs> no, so, I mean, I must have been the early 30s. I mean, this is maybe 10, 12 years ago. Wow. Because I kind of led a pretty perfect life. I mean, it's kind of, ironically, started going off the rails when other people, when other people finally get their shit together. That's when I let mine go. And I went off the rails. Um, I was the first of my friends to have children. Um, there's less than two years between my two kids who are now 16 and 14. So uh, there was no, there was nobody for me. I had nobody. Um, and having gone from somewhere where I've got, you know, I've got a very busy brain, Paul, a very busy brain (laughs) to having to look after two kids, two babies. I found it exceptionally difficult. And I would, like there was one time where I'd get the paper and there might've been an an article about, I don't know, obesity not being linked to, to fat or something and then i would annotate i'd get my biro and i'd annotate saying is this sponsored by mcdonald's i wonder <laughs> or, or, or things and you know or mm, fast food slow brains or something and i would be having effectively a conversation with myself writing it on paper like a mad woman because i had no nobody to share it with and no yeah outpouring i've heard from a lot of people that are stay at home parents uh how hard it is for them to share honestly about the tedium yeah. of being a parent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you know what people tend to go, oh, being a mum is the hardest job in the world. It's not the, hard, the hardest job in the world. I should imagine that is kind of bomb disposal or rocket scientist, brain surgeon. But it is the most dull job in the world. It's the most t- tedious is the right word in the in the real sense of the word. Um, and I was time like, consuming. Yeah, yeah. time consuming. I, I liken it to, there's a, a Greek a myth of uh, Sisyphus and he is tasked with rolling this massive boulder right up to the top of the hill. And he spends all day rolling up to the top of the hill. And as soon as he gets it to the top, it drops to the bottom and guess what's in front of him? Another big hill. So to me, that's what it's like. It's that never ending thing of, Ah, do you know what? I think I've just got it to the top of it. Brilliant. That's done. Oh, down it goes. Start again. So it's, I'm not saying it's not worthwhile. I'm not saying, but I'm just saying it is, it is hard and it's repetitive. It's like pushing a boulder up a hill and doing that over and over and over again. Yeah. And and I think sometimes people will say, well, you know, if you're going to complain about it, you made the decision to Mm -hmm. have kids. But I I don't think, again, the two have to be mutually exclusive. It depends on who you're talking to about mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. If you're telling your kids, listen, you're a pain in my ass. You don't understand how horrible this is. Yeah, mm-hmm, that's, correct. that would be incorrect absolutely, for, absolutely. for you to do that. But if you're sitting with mm-hmm. some other stay-at-home well, parents. Absolutely. Well, this saying, is it. You have to be able to share. Otherwise, that's like saying, you know, well, you know, do you, do you ever want to say that, you know, your other half is getting right on your nerves? Mm-hmm. And that's like saying, well, if you're going to complain about them, you shouldn't have got married. Right. 
So I was I was hanging out with some friends uh, a week or two ago, and only one of us had had kids. One of the four of us, and he said to the three of us, honestly, if I had to do it over again, I wouldn't. He said it's just too mm-hmm. much work. Mm-hmm. And his kids are all grown mm-hmm. now, so he's, you know, it's not like he's in the middle of it, but mm-hmm. uh, I thanked him for being so honest about that because mm-hmm. I tend to think there are probably a lot of parents who feel that way but think that they would be a terrible per- parent for saying so. Correct. Um, the episode with Ted Lied is a really good episode where he speaks very, very frankly about... Mm-hmm. Um, being a father and all the conflicting feelings mm-hmm. he has and separating I love these kids from mm-hmm. I don't recommend it to That's anyone. Right. I mean it used to be that I can remember going to either taking the kids to nursery school or something and kind of saying you know what this morning you know they wouldn't go down to sleep or blah 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 and she played up during her nap time and just saying you know sometimes I just think to myself you know is it, you know, maybe, maybe I should um, get the, the booze out of the chocolate liqueurs and, and go for that. Make some kind of joke about it being stressful, whatever. And then you expect, you just want somebody just to say, tell me about it, or I know what it is. And then, but because everyone in, especially suburbia, again, it's so much kind of trying to keep up with the Joneses, it'll be like, oh, oh, really? Oh, no, well, oh, mine, mine are always sleep perfectly. And you just think, great, now you've just made me feel like shit. Yeah. Or... Well, you know, well, well, I don't know. I, I was too busy because I had mine cooking some quinoa and oats, <laughs> something that we grew in the thing. And you just think, oh, do you know what? I can't be doing with that. So how did the uh, the shopping, okay. did that start before the gambling? Yeah. And um, my husband has a great job. Um, he works long hours. And I get bored. And I think it started with, this was kind of before uh, I started having regular counselling. And, uh, you know, people say, a bit like some kind of food or people who eat a lot, you know, trying to trying to fill some kind of void. And I think the same could be said for me spending and shopping. And I, I look now and just think, I've got like so much stuff. It's like too much stuff. And... I consider myself a, a kind and generous person, but just because I am doesn't mean that I can't be a glutton as well as being kind. You know, people are complicated. Um, and kind of having uh, reduced dramatically the amount of uh, alcohol, being being drunk, and not taking drugs, and and also kind of trying not to buy so much shit. I started kind of one day just looking at. Uh, online gambling like the slot machine type things which anybody knows is complete and utter mugs game completely we we, we know that it's rigged. rigged yeah and yet it consumed so much of my time and ultimately you know money and i, I don't want to talk about details but it i'm, I'm ashamed Deeply, deeply ashamed. Did the gambling follow the shopping? Yeah. Can we talk about what the, as comfortable as you are sharing the details of it, I, I, because it's a little vague as to how bad it got. Yeah. And what 
form it took, uh-huh. what it looked like, um, as comfortable as you are sharing the details of that mm-hmm. so you can paint a, a, a picture for us. Not for us to relish yeah. your downfall, but sure. to understand what, what does a shopping addiction look like. Um, uh, and by the way, somebody wrote a beautiful guest blog uh, on our website about a shopping addiction and mm-hmm. how if you truly have a shopping addiction, it's not funny. Like, you know, like yeah. it's portrayed in yeah. in the movies. It It is because destructive. It is because it kind of, it makes you feel, it makes you feel important because you know what? You can actually, you can buy whatever you want. And uh, for me, the, the, the worst and the most embarrassing thing about it was that my husband trusted me enough for so a joint account so his um wages would be pe- paid in and you know i would be losing money by, by the th- thousands a day maybe a thousand pounds a day wow you know not always but the the, the thing is i at the time I-, I didn't even realize that this was i didn't even realize it was an uh, an addiction it was just something that I did to fill the time and the boredom and to make me feel important. Because if you win something or you get something, it makes you feel like you've achieved something. And you are something. Yeah, and that you are something. And it's so strange because people kind of who, if I think of somebody gambling, I think predominantly blokes standing in the betting shop of thinking, come on, this one, it's got to win. I've got to win this one, I'm convinced it is. But for me, it was not like that at all because it wasn't, it was on the slot machines and, you know, or electronic slot machines. And I'm a clever girl. I knew it was a mugs game, but I didn't think that I was, I wasn't aware of how much I was spending, for one. And, you know, my husband, whose money is coming into this account, who trusts me with it, and then, you know, we had some savings and I run through that. And it was, I was doing that for maybe, I did it for maybe about, about six months. And I mean. How much money do you think you went through? Are you comfortable sharing that? I, do you know why I'm not comfortable sharing? Because I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed that my husband worked so hard. So hard. And I had so little respect so little respect for it. But, I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, we're, we're talking over $25,000. Here's what I think when you share about it. You clearly have shame and regret about it. I don't see somebody who was selfish and disrespectful. I see somebody mm-hmm. who was in so much pain that mm-hmm. hadn't developed coping skills to mm-hmm. deal with that pain and discomfort mm-hmm. in being in her life mm-hmm. and who she is. That's what mm-hmm. I see. Mm-hmm. So I... And it, it wasn't even kind of... It's difficult to say that it was even an, an addiction because I didn't feel a compulsion to do it. I just felt... It's so sad. It's, this is the saddest thing, is that something like that should... Like, the material possessions or the thrill of a win should make you feel... It's sad that that is what makes you feel loved or normal. And it's that which I find so sad. And the reason that I'm kind of tearing up as I'm talking, I am actually smiling, right? Yeah. 
but it's so bittersweet because I knew that I would get found out. I wasn't hiding it. It's not like I was selling something and sneaking this round. There was no sneakiness in it. I was doing it, but my husband trusted me with the, the bank account. Um, I just was pissing money away. What was it like when you revealed it to him? Well, he f he found it, and I knew he would. And he said, what's this money? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I kind of I said, yeah, no, it's fine. And I have to be honest that when he discovered it, I actually had no idea how much money I had lost. I had no idea. And do you know what? If he hadn't gone back through what was happening... I would probably still be doing it now. You were just kind of in, in a fog <laughs> of... Yeah, I'd probably still be doing it now. But him kind of going back saying, well, what the hell is this? What the hell is this? And then saying, do you know how much... And don't get me wrong, there were times when I, when I did win. And I'm big on the slot machines. You know, once I won like £28,000. What? Yeah. But even with that, even with that win... That doesn't even begin to cover oh, no. the losses. No. And I'm so ashamed. And, he, and it was at that time that he just said, that's it. We are done. We are through. With you two as a couple? Yeah, that's it. And what did we, you think? Done. And what did you think? And, and I just thought, I, I don't blame him. I think there was that part of me that I'm saying that I, I don't think I wanted to get caught out. But I wasn't surprised that I had got caught out. It's very easy to kind of look at it and go, I guess it was a cry for help. But it was a, certainly a subconscious cry for help, I think. But one that I wish I'd not... I certainly wasn't aware of doing it. And I certainly... If I could take it back, I, I would. I would. If I could take it all back and go back in time, you know, I, I regret it hugely. Um, but the the funny thing is as well that and having told this to my uh, counsellor who... I just started seeing at the time. It was very important for me to be able to tell my counsellor the truth at all times, like real warts and all stuff. And my counsellor said, I want you to go to a support group. But I knew that I would, I knew that I wasn't going to go to a support group. And the reason was, it sounds like I'm in somebody, <laughs> only somebody who's in denial would say, I wasn't addicted to gambling. There was no underhand sneakiness, it was, I was just spending money. I was spending money openly. But but you would agree that you were trying to fill an emotional hole. Yeah, without doubt. With, with, with compulsive a, activity. Correct. Okay. Correct. Uh, and, fill, and fill a void. And I think that as well, that kind of contributed to me becoming ill. I think that the stress of that and the upset as well that, I'd that I knew that I'd caused my husband and the fact that it was then potentially... He wanted to divorce me. Then there was no right. Well, let's. Why did you do this? Let's talk about it. It was like you've screwed it up. That is it. But you did not divorce. We did not divorce, and I think one of the main reasons was that I became, I say, unfortunately, unfortunately, became ill and was um, hospitalised with a, a blood infection and had to be on the intravenous drip. And I think that realising that for me, you know. Things were not actually always as easy as maybe my husband thought they were. And also that he then had to spend time 
you know, looking after the kids. And although the kids don't need much looking after because they're teenagers, I think it gave him an appreciation of what I do. And that actually seeing me vulnerable as well, there was nothing malicious in what I was doing. Oh, I'd been a, a prize idiot, of course, but there was nothing malicious. It was not about screwing him over. And, I, and it wasn't about winning money. No. It wasn't about getting richer. No, it was just it was just about filling the void. Yeah. And it the was, shopping, it doesn't sound like what wasn't to impress people. Mm -hmm. It was just to... Again, fill, uh, some, yeah. Fill the fill the void. Feel feel validated. Mm -hmm. In fact, that that's the that's what it is to feel validated, because that's what I've been missing generally in my life. I think is feeling validated. You were sharing uh, that you really really related to the episode with Dr. Janice Webb on yes. emotional neglect. Yeah, yeah. I highly recommend anybody mm -hmm. uh, who feels like. Oh, you know, why why am I so quote unquote fucked up? I don't have any thing to yeah. to point to. Listen listen to that episode because it might ring your bell. I think I think it definitely will because it's like you know, having given you the my background. So I grew up in uh southeast London, quite a privileged background, nothing perfect um education, childhood sweetheart. I mean, and and they say, "Oh, I have one boy and one girl." What is not to love about that? What is not to love on paper? You know, it's, it's the perfect scenario. And even kind of thinking, well, I've got a, a beautiful house, got a nice large house in Kent. Beautiful. But it's not always as it seems. It's never. It's never it's as never. it seems. And it sounds like, I think that people who have not got a big story never want to go, well, do you know what? I'm finding things difficult. In my privileged lifestyle, mm -hmm. because you've got somebody saying, well, were, were, you, were you raped every day? Were you beaten up? Were you abused? Well, no. Well, then you shut, you shut up. And I think you then feel that you can't say, do you know what? I've got struggles too. Because it's like, oh, boo-hoo. Did we not have enough hummus? Was there, was, there, was there not enough artisan breads for you in the morning? You know, and it's like, that's what you feel like. You feel like you're being a, a fake. Yes, Mama said that the camembert run out. It was terrible. We only had one butler. The footman wasn't available. You know, so you've got to keep it in perspective. So how are you trying to fill the void in healthy ways today? Well, um, when I was taken into hospital and hospitalized, it's the most, it's so boring. So boring. So I was actually able to start redoing things like artwork. I was, I did some tapestry. I did some knitting. I did some painting and I started drawing and painting uh using paint onto like you know like canvas tote bags mm -hmm. and I started realizing that actually do you know what I'm pretty good at this and so somebody had come in one of the nurses had said to me oh that's amazing oh my, my my friend Janice she loves cocktails and she likes shopping and she's just about to marry a French man would you you couldn't design something could you and I painted and designed a tote bag which had like a Parisian-style street there, which with her friend with red hair who looked like that, and just thought, you know what, I can do this. If somebody, if you tell me things about your friends, like what they like, I did one for my friend Ian and his um, Mrs. Joe. Uh, she loves the circus and loves the colour pink, so I started to do things like that. And so, is it something that you uh, continue doing today? Yeah, so 
I did some over Christmas and sold some yeah. to, to people. So, um, you know, for like 25 quid a bag because it's something unique and I love doing it. But it's not a money spinner in that, you know, it takes me a long time to do it. And I loved it, but I just like creating things. Yeah. And bizarrely, I've realised that creating things, like a finished product, actually, that's what I, that's what I crave. It's that validation from completing something. And it sounds like it's not to show it off, but to just kind of see yourself. Correct. So whereas I've been buying things or, you know, was gambling to get that thrill and feel like a winner, I actually get exactly the same from doing something for somebody and making a bag, knowing that they will love it and painting it. So really, that's all I needed to do. And it's like, part of me thinks, you fucking idiot, putting your marriage on the line and wasting all that. But you know what? It is what it is. And and maybe that's what it took for maybe, you absolutely. to be willing to say... I need to dig a little deeper emotionally because yeah. yeah. I've put some walls up around myself. Absolutely. So um, for stuff which, and like I say, I've still got too much stuff, some of which I've started to sell on eBay because I need to prove to my husband that, that I never did take him, take advantage of him or certainly that I didn't mean to. That wasn't to. your intent. Yeah. Julia, is there anything else that you'd like to share? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I would, I've always wanted to say this. Go fuck yourself. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> what a sweet, sweet human being. Um, this episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive. A must read for anyone in medicine from a doctor turned patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. If you have not yet subscribed to this podcast, that is a great way to support us. Um, we always appreciate any help you want to give, whether it's financial or non-financial. If you feel like donating to the podcast, either a one-time donation via PayPal or 
or a monthly donation via Patreon, uh, go to our website, metalpod.com. Um, and and we, I, I believe we also take uh, donations from Zell. And uh, and by Zell, I mean the uh, character from the movie Marathon Man. Oh, my God. What a dated fucking reference. Such a good movie. Such a good movie. Zell! The Weiser Angle! This is uh, an awful moment filled out by Exasperated Cat Lady, and she writes, Basking in the aftermath of an incredible orgasm from my new magic wand, when my normally very chill cat jumps onto the bed and begins attacking the vibrator. There's a long history of conflict between vibrators and cats. You guys remember the vibrator cat war of 72? Oh, the carnage left in the wake of that dark, dark time in our nation's history. In fact, if you're ever in Washington, D.C., I really recommend you visit the Tomb of the Unknown Vibrator. Of course, there's a soldier standing guard to make sure the battery never runs out. (laughs) All right, is this riff ever going to end? No, it's not. This is from the Fears survey filled out by Fern, and she writes, I fear that if I overcome insecurity and discontentment, I will never get anything done and accept mediocrity. That is such a common fear. It's also why a lot of people um, avoid therapy or going on meds, especially creative people. They think that it's going to take away their edge, and I can say uh, from my personal experience, if anything, it broadens the palette of ways that you can express your creativity. The, the anger and the darkness will always be accessible. But you can also access emotions that were really hard to access. Sensitivity, joy. I know there are others. I just can't think of any others right now. This is a novelsome moment filled out by T-Bear. And she writes, At the beginning of this year, I lost a close relative of mine and then experienced a miscarriage a month later. A few days after I lost the baby, my husband and I went shopping at a local grocery store. As I was crossing the sidewalk to go into the store, a vehicle almost ran me over. I glared at the person driving, shook my head, and kept walking. The car pulled up alongside me, and a woman yelled at me, How dare you shake your head at us? Why did you walk in front of us, yada, yada, yada? I'm a very petite, short woman. Think five foot one, a bit over 100 pounds. I've never yelled at a stranger in public. I lost it. I yelled at the lady that they had almost hit me with their car. Her and her guy got out of the car and accosted me and my husband. The other guy called my husband fat, and I walked up to this tall man and yelled, how dare you call him fat, etc., etc. I didn't give an inch and took out my phone to call the cops when they finally left us alone. It was such a stressful experience, but I'm actually pretty proud of how I handled it. I found some power in me that day that I didn't know I had. I didn't curse, but I stood my ground. I'm the type to avoid conflict, and as a small person, don't expect to ever win a fist fight, but I stood up to a person twice my size that day. And just so you know, you will never find us shopping at that store again. I'm brave, but not that brave. Thank you for sharing that. And it's 
interesting how sometimes we become different people when we, when we get into a car. Remember, when I first got my driver's license at 16, I remember thinking, oh my God, there are so many assholes in the world. It, it was almost like a light version of the anonymity of the internet. And for me, there was one time I was in college and I was driving and this car cut me off and we both slammed on our brakes and we got out of the car and I was ready to tear this person a new asshole. Like, what the fuck? And I saw it was a friend of mine. I was like, Bob, what's going on? Just completely different person. I think, too, because cars are so dangerous that a lot of times our being an asshole is about fear. I think fear gets triggered easily because generally the, the two things that freak us out is that we're going to be late for something and we think our lives are going to fall apart if we get delayed by 30 more seconds. And the other thing is is almost getting an accident is fucking scary. I hit a deer like 30 years ago driving full speed. I was driving a, a full-size Jeep and man, that was fucking traumatizing. Obviously, a lot more traumatizing for the deer, but fortunately, the, the deer was, was killed instantly. But I was shaking. My voice was shaking. It, it, I don't know. I can, I can fax you guys some more of my thoughts on cars if you, if you would like that. From the fears survey filled out by Swimming Upstream, and she writes, I fear that I will regret not having children. I made the rational decision that I am not physically or mentally capable of raising a child, but I do fear that it will be a very lonely life. I fear that I will deeply miss out on all of those milestones like graduations and weddings and anniversaries and then becoming a grandmother one day. I fear that I will never partake in those warm, fuzzy moments like cheering my kid on at a t-ball game or making a big, big batch of pancakes for my family on a Sunday morning. There will be no one to take care of me when I'm an old, decrepit woman in a diaper who can't get out of a rocking chair and I will have to wear one of those horrible life alerts, but somehow I won't be able to get to it when I fall and no one will find my body for weeks and my cat will have eaten half my face. You are my new hero. That is so fucking fantastic. And I relate to that a lot more than I would like to admit. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by The Name Goes Here, right? And uh, they write, I'd go back to when I was 13, or was it when I was 12, to when I first started to fantasize about having been born as a girl. Coincidentally, it's also the time when my long spiral into deep isolation, suicidal depression began. I was also struggling with massive shame about my sexuality. I had a fetish, and I'll leave it at that. I'd tell that kid to stop beating themselves up for their, quote, weird-slash-perverse sexuality. They were no more or less weird than anything or anybody else. I'd tell them to stand up for their right to have their own interest and taste, and to not live in fear of being different, and to stop trying to please their parents by being, uh, quote, the quiet one who never wanted anything. Finally, I tell that kid who never understood why they never fit in anywhere 
to Google the word transgender. If she had just known that it was possible to not be stuck in the box of assigned gender, she would probably have been able to avoid spending her adolescence spiraling, spiraling into a suicidal pit. She would have had the community she needed to not hate herself for existing. Wow, thank you for that. That was so deep. So deep and beautiful. Thank you. This is from the same survey filled out by Beep Boop. And she writes, I want to go back to my eight-year-old self and tell her that it would all be okay. I'd tell her to talk to the teacher, to the brownie leader, to any and every adult that would listen. I'd wrap her up and give her a hug and tell her that we are smart and beautiful and that she is worthy of love. If I could, I'd leave her letters for when she was a little older, telling her of how we fought for the right to marry whoever we loved and won, and uh, of how, in her own little way, she helped win the fight to repeal Ireland's abortion laws. Thank you for sharing that. I always love when uh, something is filled out by a listener from, from another country. This is from The Struggle in a Sentence, filled out by Lou. And about her depression, she writes, A black hole in the chest that takes over my body and drags me to bed. Oh, that is so good. About her anxiety, like a fizzy drink you shake and hasn't been opened. Those are great. Thank you for that, Lou. Lou. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Spotted Dick. For those of you who don't know, I believe that is an English dish. Very unfortunately named. Uh, let's see. And she is 17. She was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, or I should say is being raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. She uh, identifies as asexual. Ever been the victim of uh, sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. I don't think it counts as sexual abuse, and I don't think he means it as that, but I always feel oddly sexual about it. My dad does stuff like rub my back and shoulders from behind and kisses my neck while telling me how beautiful I am. That is fucking creepy, and that is absolutely uh, covert sexual abuse. And the label doesn't matter as much as the feelings that it leaves you with. Um, He'll kiss me, not on the lips, but on the face with spit and tongue and everything. I find it so disgusting. It is disgusting. It always makes me feel super weird and I fucking hate admitting it. I've told him I don't like being touched, so say anything you want from a distance and he'll agree in the moment, but then do it again anyway. Your dad is a narcissist who... excuse me, is uh, perpetrating covert incest on you. That Your body is your own and your dad is not respecting that. And he is sexualizing you, he is objectifying you, and that, of course, is going to fuck you up and make you feel unsafe. Your, your dad needs therapy. And I'm so sorry that you're probably still living under the same roof as him. Uh, I can't remember much from my childhood before the age of 11, but I do remember always being frightened to be alone with my dad. I had this intense fear that he'd for some reason get mad with 
uh, me and kill me. I don't know why. He always tells me I'm his favorite from my brother and sister, and as far as I know, I'm the only one he acts this way with. It reminds me a lot of that uh, Woody Allen documentary I'm, I'm watching right now uh, called Pharaoh versus Allen or Allen versus Pharaoh. Very, very uh, disturbing the way he <clears throat> interacted from the get-go with his uh, with his daughter. Uh, she's been emotionally abused. My mom would spank me when I was little on the butt, thigh, arm, and on the face when I did something really bad. Rarely enough to leave bruises, though. But again, I don't remember a whole lot from when I was little, but a lot of yelling went on. My parents would fight a lot. My mom did the yelling. My dad did the banging doors and throwing shit. I think I would just hide in my room and play with my imaginary friends and toys. That must have been a really hard is a really hard environment for you to stay present in. Who who wouldn't retreat into their brain? And I very much relate to that. The way my mom touched me and talked to me um, until I began setting, trying to set boundaries actually in my 20s and still just, you know, would would listen occasionally, but... Any positive experiences with the abusers? My dad and I do get along sometimes, mostly in the summer because that's when the cricket is on and that's the only thing we both enjoy. Except now there's a lot more women's cricket and he's super sexist, so I can't wait for those arguments. Darkest thoughts. I want to gather my family underneath a high building and have them watch me jump off of it. I just want them to see how much pain they've brought upon me. I want them to feel bad for the rest of their lives, like they're responsible for killing me. Man, that is heavy. Here's here's something to think about. You don't have to kill yourself for you to kill that part of your life that you don't want to experience anymore. And it can start by setting boundaries. And I would recommend a support group or a therapist to help you learn how to voice what your boundaries are, to find even what your boundaries are. When you live with a narcissist with no boundaries like you are living right now, it really confuses your sense of what is right and wrong, what you're entitled to, um, where to draw the line, and the, the result is black and white thinking and either, uh, you know, being obsessed with something that brings you pleasure or just wanting to throw it all away. Uh, there's a great article uh, called uh, Co-Narcissism by Dr. Alan Rappaport, and you can Google it. It's about five pages long, and it describes the effects of living uh, with a narcissistic caregiver. And you might find some comfort in that. Um, Darkest secrets. I once put a pin on the seat of one of my teachers I absolutely despised, and her reaction to the pain was fucking incredible. To this day, it makes me feel so good thinking about it. Some background to her, though. If we weren't actually, if we weren't doing incredibly well academically and behaving like angels, she would yell so loud at us, put us down, call us names, and tell us we're stupid and how we'd go nowhere in life. 
We would, no exaggeration, go home weeping. So I'm not even ashamed of this. She deserved it. I'm actually proud, question mark. That was not, this was not meant to happen. Um... What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I would just like to tell my dad to fuck off and tell him how much of a controlling, selfish, narcissistic piece of shit he is. Then leave and never come back. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I didn't have to think about everything I do. I want to not feel judged when I'm out walking my dog or buying coffee. I just want my mind to leave me alone. Have you shared these things with others? I tried to with one of my closest friends. Backed out of that pretty quickly. A lot of people will not be able to understand the experience that you have had and are currently having because it's complicated. It's not on the societal radar um, as much as it should be. Uh, There's a book that I recommend all the time called Silently Seduced by uh, Kenneth Adams and Anybody who relates to what I'm reading from this survey should check that book out. Uh, How do you feel after writing these things down? Like a drama queen. I feel like I'm making this all up in my head and none of it is actually as bad as I think it is. No, it, it is as bad as you think it is and you are not a drama queen. And you deserve to feel safe. You deserve to feel safe and autonomous. And here's the bad news is you're going to have to be the one that starts setting the boundaries and self-parenting yourself because you have two parents that are incapable of recognizing your needs. They failed you. They failed you. And that stunts us emotionally. And so we tend to deal with things in black or white. You know, I'm either going to let them do what they want because I don't want to make waves or I'm going to kill myself. And the answer is somewhere in between. And you might have to wind up cutting contact with your parents for a while or even permanently, but you don't have to figure all that out right now. It's just baby steps of learning what your needs are and what you like and, and what makes you feel safe and and being there for yourself. But it takes it takes work, but man, you're you're worth it. You're worth it. This is from the Back in Time survey filled out by Grief Girl, and she writes, I'm 27 now, but I want to go back in time a few times to tell myself some things that I didn't know and uh, then that I do know now. To me, at 10 years old, the girl that made you play house, a- a.k.a. take off all my clothes and touch me, was probably projecting out her own abuse from someone else uh, onto me. It's going to be okay. You're going to get over the shame that you feel and know that it's not your fault, and you will heal from this. To 14-year-old me, that 18-year-old guy that took your virginity and broke up with you right after was a real piece of shit. You're not a whore, and he took advantage of you. You were way too young to be put in that situation. But remember always, it's not your fault. One day, you will find love. The 21-year-old me, you were just diagnosed with bipolar after suffering from mental illness for most of your life. Cut yourself some slack. You're doing the best you can. Things will get better. To the 23-year-old me, 
I know that you're pregnant and your boyfriend just died, and right now you feel like grief will swallow you whole and that you'll never be a good mom. You're going to bring a beautiful baby boy into this world, and he is going to be half of you and half of the love of your life. He is going to live on forever through this baby. It's a blessing, and you are going to be an amazing mom, and you are going to experience love like you've never known before. Wow. Fucking wow. Thank you for that. And I'm so sorry for your loss. You you really sound like quite quite an amazingly resilient soul. Thank you for sharing that. This is also from the Back in Time survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Cheapskate. And he writes, I would go back to when I was in and around the age of eight to nine, when my dad would say to me after one of my hockey games, I don't know why we spend so much money on new skates for you when you spend half your shift laying on the ice. I would tell my younger self that it's okay to have feelings, that it's okay to tell somebody that they hurt your feelings, that it's okay to ask for people for help. That it's okay to stand up to non-constructive criticism from your father. It's okay to explain to your father that he hurt your feelings. I would tell younger me that it's okay if I don't want to play hockey anymore, if I don't want to. I would explain to younger me that his father loves him with all his heart, but that he doesn't know how to show it properly because his father never showed him would tell me about all the struggles that his father had to face as a young boy because his father was an alcoholic with untreated mental illness. I would tell him that his father, while not perfect, is trying his best to be a good father and break the cycle of alcoholism and violence that plagues the family. I would tell him that his father will eventually figure things out, but that he could help his father to achieve that sooner by opening his heart and helping to lead his father down the path of love. I would explain how much his mother loves him, even though she never expresses it. I would explain to him how cold and indifferent his grandmother was to his mom. That his mom is doing the very best she can with what she has. I would explain to him that his mother never feels well, but she works really, really hard to keep six kids and the household going. I would explain to him how much helping his mother would mean to her, even if she never asks for help. I tell him that he is a wonderful, curious, intelligent, and creative person. That it's okay to be yourself, no matter who that self is. That he deserves to love and to be loved. And that the world will have its struggles, but it will get better. If he stays true to himself, he will continue to be a wonderful person. He will face some struggles along the way, but he's strong and caring, and he will get through it and will live a meaningful and happy life. I would tell him that I love him. Wow. Wow. And that sucks that your dad ruined hockey for you because hockey is such a fucking great sport. Thank you for those. Man, that was beautiful. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by walking in the snow. And he writes, I was walking my dog and came across the place I was sitting while planning suicide less than a year ago. As I stood there remembering the darkness and hopelessness of that time, my dog Alfred, the cutest brown pit bull you'll ever see, started playing in the snow. Suddenly I was smiling and so glad that I'd texted the crisis line rather than killing myself. 
For a brief moment, the pain and anxiety I still deal with melted away, and I couldn't have been happier watching him in the snow. Wow. Wow. That is... That is some deep shit. And I'm so glad that you're still here to have shared that with us. And... I'm just so grateful for these surveys that you guys fill out. It It is, uh, they're so moving and they're so enlightening and they really help make this feel like so much more than me doing a show. Um, yeah, I'm just, sometimes I'm just speechless. If you're, if you guys are out there and you're, and you're feeling stuck, please ask for help. It's so worth it. There's so much that we think we know that we actually don't know. And so many experiences that can be awaiting us if we just open our mind and uh, ask, for, ask for some help. I'm so glad I did. And just remember, you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I in know some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way.